Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, January 6th. The first championship weekend of the 2023 pro tennis season is now officially upon us, and as expected, it promises to deliver outstanding tennis from start to finish here on today's show. What I want to do for all of you listeners is set the scene for that championship action, a rare championship Saturday for all of us tennis fans here in the United States. Of course, it will be Sunday where our five tour-level events are being played this week. That starts in Adelaide, the men and women competing side-by-side side there. You love the narrative that has emerged for championship Saturday. You've got a couple of veterans. Yes, I think it's fair to describe Arena Sabalenka as a veteran as this point. You put together three consecutive top 10 seasons. You are just a stable presence, even if sometimes her game is anything but stable at the top of the WTA Tour. Certainly Novak Djokovic, probably the unequivocal number one in the mind of just about every men's tennis fan entering this 2023 season. To see him back in Australia, you felt like he was the prohibitive favorite regardless of how he performed this week in Adelaide. But to see him even slightly hobbled physically, dare I say, dominate tactically the way he did over to Neil Medvedev in the semifinals to see how exceptional he was physically in the quarterfinals in his victory against Denis Shapovalov. Djokovic is in fine form. And look, he's going to face another significant challenge in the finals. He's playing a guy who, in my opinion, has been the most impressive player not named Novak Djokovic. And it's not just because he's managed to win each of his matches in Adelaide, but from an eye test perspective, the level we have seen from Sebi Korda this week week in Adelaide. He looks like a top 10 guy. The weapons are just a little bit more definitive. He's a little bit more decisive in finding them, at least through this first week of the season. A third consecutive final, I should say third final in his last four events, dating back to last year now for Korda. The 22-year-old Americans clicking on all cylinders. That's a really fun championship match. And again, I want to talk about how each of those guys got there. I mentioned it's veteran versus rising star on the men's side. Sabalink, the veteran for uh, on the women inside, she's taken on a rising superstar in Linda Neskova, who, again, I know I have talked quite a bit about here on the show this week, but she's one of the biggest stories of this opening week of play. Neskova, another impressive straight set victory, uh, three set victory, excuse me, this time over top seed and world number two owned Jabir. Now, yes, Jabir was struggling physically. You could tell her back was bothering her. It was a little tougher for her to change directions than it typically is. But I mean, the remarkable feat, the, I should say, most notable trait 
of Linda Neskova throughout the course of this week has been the ability for her to continue to play on her terms regardless of opponent. I'll explain what that means, why she'll have her toughest test in doing that coming up in this championship match against Sabalenka. Again, if it was just Adelaide this week, Djokovic versus Korda, Sabalenka versus Neskova, that would probably be enough tennis. But of course, we've got the inaugural United Cup going on, the U.S. clinching a 5-0 victory over their semifinal opponents, Team Poland. I want to talk about Fritz's clinching win over Hubi Hercots. Obviously, Madison Keys continues her fine form. And I got the chance to broadcast some of the mixed doubles, so I may leak out some mixed doubles thoughts towards the end of that United Cup discussion. Of course, the biggest match of United Cup yesterday was a three-set victory from Stefano Tsitsipas to extend his team's stay in the event. Tsitsipas down love two overall on the scoreboard, down a set to Matteo Berrettini, comes back to earn a three-set win, keep his team alive. Of course, ultimately, it was Italy who advanced to the finals. Italy who lost in their city group final to Poland, now a chance to win the title. You file that under things you love to see, but... Look, this is Team USA's to lose. I will explain why. I will explain the significance, how great it would be for Team USA to have some team event success, which has been lacking at the two highest level team events we have in professional tennis of late. So uh, again, maybe this success is indicative of the broader success we see in both American men's and women's tennis of late. I don't want to project too much onto the first week of a season inaugural team event, but Again, we'll get into United Cup. We'll talk about the other American thriving this week, not in Sydney, but in Auckland. Coco Goff just is the real freaking deal. And we've known that for a while now, but the standard of success she brings match in, match out. I should say her floor as a player, really, match in, match out. It's impressive. The stats say as much. The eye tests say as much. I think she's added a new wrinkle to her game that she's always had, but certainly perfected. And I want to discuss that here on today's show. But we'll talk about golf. We'll talk about the first-time finalist, Rebecca Masarova, the 23-year-old Spaniard. She's got the athleticism. And I'll explain what I mean here on today's show. And then, of course, maybe the best match that happened over the course of the past 24 hours. And Technically, it was very early Saturday morning, even here on the West Coast in California this week. But how about Talon Griegsport versus Benjamin Bonzi? The tennis was outstanding. The level of play was outstanding. I want to get into what I mean by that. Maybe I'll be able to pitch all of you to go, at the very least, watch the highlights of that match on YouTube, because I promise it will be very much worth your while. With all of that said... A lot of the takes I will offer here on today's show, I feel, are takes I have already offered throughout the course of this week. So if this episode's on the shorter side, I suppose I do apologize for that fact. I will say I'm trying my absolute dandest. If not on Sunday, on Monday, I will be joined by Tennis.com editorial producer, our dear friend David Kane, to offer some significant week one reactions, dive into the stats, start you know nerding out as we do week in, week out, day in, day out here. On this mini break podcast feed, of course, the reason we're able to do that, not only because of the support we get from all of you listeners, but of course, because of the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. Best equipment, best prices, one location, tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15 for 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point, symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. 
Let's start with the dual site. Men's, women competing side-by-side in Adelaide certainly made for an electric center court schedule at that event yesterday. I mean, what's the worst match of Sabalenka-Begu? Naskova versus uh, Jabur, Djokovic versus Medvedev, and then Korda versus Nishioka, which was probably the most dramatic of all of the matches. I mean, it's probably Sabalenka-Begu, and we here at Cracked Rackets, of course, would object to that because Sabalenka is maybe the most compelling watch in all of tennis, men's or women's, in my opinion. You just never know what's going to happen. She'll mix in 10 minutes of the best tennis you'll ever see with seven minutes of the worst, Um, but... I think the place we have to start as it relates to Adelaide certainly is with Linda Naskova, who just continues to make this first week about her through her results. Anytime you have an 18-year-old reaching their first tour-level final, especially when this 18-year-old's a former Junior Slam champion, as I like reminding all of you she was back at the 2021 Junior French Open, it's something you take notice of in the first week, particularly when this first week comes you know, on the back of an extraordinarily successful second half and really duration of 2022. And look, I mentioned this earlier in the week. For her career, Linda Naskova has now played 126 total matches, ITF, WTA lower levels, 125Ks now obviously here in Adelaide and elsewhere. She's 91-35. and 35. She's won 75% of her first 126 matches. I always say the high 60s percent as a teenager, that's where the Ennins of the world live, the Kleisters of the world live. If you win 75% to 80%, you're in the Sharapova, Serena, Iga Sviantec range as a teenager. When you're over 80%, you're Hingis or you're the GOAT. Monica Seles, the best teenager we will ever have in professional tennis history, men's or women's. Niskova's flirting with the Ennin Kleister's tier right now. And of course, we still need to see some sort of dramatic slam success before we can actually seriously have that conversation. But it's week number one. Let me overreact, show you the pace she has been on. Again, 91 and 35 overall in her career. She qualified for the U.S. Open last year before a three set loss to Marie Buskova, qualified in Roland Garros before a three set loss to Emma Raducanu. I mentioned the 91 and 35 overall. She's 18 and 7 in her tour-level matches. Again, only 25 of them, but she's won 72%. And I know many of them have come in qualifying rounds, but you look for Naskova, who made a semifinal in Prague as a wild card back in July. Again, qualified for two slams, had to win three quali matches to do so. Comes through qualifying here and listen to these wins. Three sets over Kalinskaya. Straight sets over Potapova. Three sets over Kasekina. Straight sets over Claire Liu. Three sets over Azarenka. Now three sets, 6-3, 1-6, over Own Shabur to get to the, her first tour-level final. What's so remarkable is that in each of the six matches she has now played this week, each of the matches have been played on her terms. The power tennis that Linda Naskova is capable of playing, I don't want to say transcendent because I think I would accuse myself of overusing that word. But it's elite tier power. It's Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club tier power. And honest to God, I mean that on both the serve and the ground strokes. Some of the 
reckless abandonment, dare I say, that she goes after those first serves with, regardless of what the score is on the scoreboard. I mean, how many times was she down break points in that first set as she nursed that? Because she went up a quick two-love up on Own Jaburn, immediately faced break points right away in her two-love service games. Felt like she was under a bunch of pressure, and you look for Nuskova for what it's worth. She fought off 10 of 12 break points throughout the course of the day. It just felt like she always found the big first serve when she needed it. And she hit eight aces on the day. She won 66% of her first serves, 55% of her second serve points. But she goes after that second serve. It's not too dissimilar from the first. She hits her spots extraordinarily well. Oh, my God. Her ability to explode up the tee with power on that serve to set up the first strike. And look, when Linda Neskova has her feet set, her power is unmistakable. Again, it reminds me because of their height, because of how they extend through their backhand and their forehand, truth be told. It reminds me a little bit of Garbine Muguruza when Muguruza is at her best, who uses her height, her length to beat you to the spot to get her momentum through the ball. But then there's, I mean, again, I said it, Clara Tossin with better hips as well. There's a fluidity to Naskova who doesn't move great but uses her length well to cover up for maybe the elite for, uh, lack of an elite first step or at least lack of elite foot speed. Her first step itself actually ain't too shabby. She anticipates well when she has her momentum behind the ball, uh, the depth, the pace, the action on the ball. She can generate that backhand is just a slingshot. Yes, the forehand can get a little bit big. And I think when Jabert pressure that forehand side with significant pace, or more importantly, we'll get to the through slices at Naskova to force Naskova off balance. That's when Naskova struggled. You know, when Naskova didn't have her feet directly set under her, when she had to reach for the ball or, you know, the awkward spins and angles where you're in no man's land and Naskova doesn't really know, you know, know exactly where to go, I suppose, from there. Although she did come to the net pretty efficiently throughout the course of this match. I think Jabert did a great job of mucking things up. And you could tell second set, Neskova was feeling it in her legs. She just wasn't moving as diligently as she had in prior matches to track down and well position herself for some of those Jabert slices. And it opened up everything else Jabert wanted to do. But then push came to shove. You know, Jabert couldn't take her backhand early on the rise because Neskova hits with too much pace and too much drive on her ball. And then... Look, Naskova's ability to keep Jabur honest, not allow her to cheat over because that Jabur inside-out forehand is elite. Naskova kept her honest by playing that backhand down the line, and that ability to play the backhand down the line is an elite weapon. We saw it for Radakanu when she used it so effectively on her way to the 2021 U.S. Open title. Obviously, there are countless players, Iga amongst them, who used that backhand down the line effectively. Naskova's one of them. She has that skill in her bag already, and again— she had the bigger weapons. This match, outside of the second set, was played on her terms. You're not getting the 10, 15, 20-shot rallies. The moment you leave something short, Naskova attacked. I just love how plain-faced she remains. And when I say that, you don't see the emotion on her face is what I mean throughout the course of a match. No, Never too high, never too low. You may see excitement that is bred out of exhaustion. Like there were times when she had hands on her hips, but she was actually amped up in those moments as well. She she just, you can just see she loves it. Like there's, it's not quite as explosive as Carlos Alcaraz. You know who it is? It's Yannick Sinner. There's a lot of similarities in the demeanors of Yannick Sinner and Linda Neskova. That would be the comp I have for it, where it's just steady and impressive. 
This is a really good win from Neskova, who, again, you could tell was feeling it physically, and how could she not be? Neskova played three hours against Azarenka, two hours against Shabur, two and a half hours against Kasatkina, two hours, six minutes against Kalinskaya. She's putting some serious court time throughout the course of the week. Now, of course, it always helps to be 18, but Linda Neskova, with her run, up to number 69 in the live rankings, that feels too low. No, in fact, with her run to the final, Neskova up to number 56 in the live rankings. Again, a former world junior number two. She's going to be able to play a full schedule of tour-level events as she now is over 18 and over the age requirement. And she's 56 in the world. She doesn't have to worry about playing ITFs. With this result alone, now you can change the schedule up a little bit and say, hey, you know, during February, let's go play Lyon. Maybe we play St. Petersburg. Maybe we go and make the Middle East swing and get into qualities, if not maybe the bottom of the main draw of Dubai, of Doha. Certainly now you make the Miami schedule. You're, you're playing Indian Wells. You're playing Miami, if not directly in on your own rankings. Certainly she's getting into qualifying. You know, again, it was funny two days ago, you say, I think Naskova might end the year top 50. Now it's like, oh, she almost and you never want to say better for someone who's 18 years old, but like she'll be top 50 by the end of the month. That's very much in play. That's what a result like this does for Noskova, who again, it's not like she had some cupcake draw with all due respect to Coco Goff. And I'm not trying to compare the two right now, but like, you know, if Noskova had done this in Auckland with the draw that Goff has had where she hasn't faced a top 50 player, that's one thing. Noskova's done this against Kalinskaya, Potapova, Kaskina, Claire Liu, Vika, and now Jabur. That's remarkable. She is the story of the week. That's why I continue to talk about her here on the mini break day in, day out, even if you've heard me reiterate my uh, affinity for her power. Again, uh, that comparison to Garbine Muguruza, just the length with uh, how she uses her length to extend through the ball and the drive that creates. creates. It's, again, Linda Neskova is the real deal, and she's up to number 56 in the live rankings as a result, and very much expected, by the way, uh, given how well she has played. But look, she's only a 12, she's got 12.5% chance, according to the Tennis Abstract singles forecast. That's how significant a favorite Arena Sabalenka is. And look, Sabalenka has dominated this week. She's yet to drop a set. Yes, I know she was down big, what was it, 5 1 in her opening set against Ludmilla Samsonova, but 6 and 6 win there, 3 and 5 against Fundrusova, but she was up 6 3 4 1, 3 and 2 against Arena Camilla Begu. And you know, looking through that match for Sabalenka, it just felt like when, not if, she was going to earn the break of serve. And you look for Sabalenka, who went unbroken against Begu. She, you know, uh, three for three on break point save. She won 80.6% of her first serve points, perhaps more importantly, 54% of her second serve points. And look, yesterday was the first day double faults started to sort of creep in for uh, Sabalenka. She had five double faults on the day. I believe that's the most she's had in any match that she's played so far. This week now had six, but against the 11 aces for Samsonova. And yet again, it's hilarious because you look for Arena Sabalenka, who double faulted, what was it, 10.3% of the time last season. She's the only player over 10%, and that is just truly atrocious to double fault on one out of every 10 serves. You know, she's been at 6.4% for the average so far this week. Again, for her career, Arena Sablanka has double-halted 7.5% of the time. 6.4% is a sign of improvement, at least thus far. And, you know, again, when she lands the first serve, 
it's a top tier first serve. Why she wasn't a top 10 server last season is because she threw in 407 double faults and the next closest was at 289. You hand away 100 more free points than the next closest person. Yeah, you're not going to be a top 10 server. Uh, Not with the Garcia's, Samsonova's, Osaka's of the world all still existing. But her first serve in a vacuum, and you look at her first serve win percentage last season, Arena Sabalink, in terms of, again, first serve win percentage, she was top 10 last year. You look for Sabalenka now. It, well, excuse me. She was 12th amongst top 50 players in terms of first serve win percentage. That number should be higher. And her ability right now, I mentioned last year, I thought she got better at every aspect of her game other than the serve. I thought she moved extraordinarily well, and her 36.5% break percentage was a percent above her career average. You know, she was a top 20 returner last season on the WTA Tour, and it feels like with her physicality, the strength she has, again, her ability to swing through the plus one ball right now, if she gets a backhand at her hip or higher, she is just ramming that ball down the line through her opponents. That backhand down the line has gotten special. When she has time to sit on her forehand, you're just screwed as her opponent because you never know inside in, inside out. Where's she going to go? Is she going to follow it in? If she does follow it in, Arena Sabalenka is a very good volleyer, former double slam champion. Um, She's got the weapons. I think she continues to get more fluid as a mover. She's always had the elite power, the elite quickness with her first step, but I think she's gotten a little bit more fluid. I think she's gotten a little bit more fluid swinging when she's on the run as well. She doesn't just have to try and bludgeon the ball. Now there's a little bit more feel to that shot. Sabalenka is playing top five ball. And if this is the arena Sabalenka who shows in week in, week out, and for what it's worth, you look for Sabalenka who made three finals last year. She, you know, makes the Fort Worth final. Uh, She makes a final in the Netherlands finals indoors in Stuttgart. She didn't win a title last season, which was shocking for arena Sabalenka. And I think the first time that's happened for her since 2017, it's a great response. Wins over Samsonova, Van Drusova, Begu, all in straight sets. You certainly have a worn down Linda Naskova who has faced firepower in Azarenka this week. You know, certainly faced some firepower, uh, but but hasn't uh, in Jabur, excuse me, but hasn't faced the transcendent power and the the uncorruptible, the non-negotiable first serve power of Arena Sabalenka. So if Sabalenka can keep that double fault percentage again, even going from 10% to 6%, that's a 40% improvement. Yet, you know, what's 10% of 400? So it's 160 less double faults. 160 less double faults takes you from a number six player in the world, probably the number three player in the world or number two player of the world if things continue to click properly. And as we said throughout the course of December, she is one of the players you put on the short list who actually has the weapons and the mindset to just say, I'm going down swinging, playing someone like an Iga Sviantek. And uh, certainly if Sabalenka maintains this level, she'll have the confidence to perhaps put on that sort of performance in Melbourne. That said, boy, Naskova versus Sabalenka, that's a stellar final in Adelaide, and it might not even be the better of the two finals they've got. As you look at the men's side of action happening there, I mean, you get world number one Novak Djokovic in his return to Australia. That's certainly something you want to celebrate if you are a fan in Adelaide. But 
perhaps even more exciting than that is the fact that he's going to take on a guy who has looked like a top 10 player in Sebastian Corda and Corda up to number 31 by reaching the sixth final of his career. He's now he's one in four in his previous five finals, but sixth final in the career for Corda. Uh, again, one spot off his career high right now of number 30 in the live rankings. He's sitting at 31. But look, before we talk about Corda, Let's talk about Novak real quick. And, you know, I always struggle here on this show to discuss Novak Djokovic when he's not playing a slam semifinal, slam final sort of match. And you can really lock in on the tactics of that individual performance because, with all due respect, what am I going to tell you listeners about Novak Djokovic that you don't already know? His ability to extend rallies, hit when he's on the slide, is elite. It's probably the best of any player in the history of men's tennis. His ability to hit the two passing shot combination, dip the first one at your feet so you pop up the first volley that you know he's tracking down and hitting some sort of on-the-run magic, that's exceptional. The biggest development for Novak Djokovic, and I suppose this is where we can turn to how it relates to his victories over these past two days over both Denis Shapovalov and Daniil Medvedev, it's just how much more efficient he's gotten on serve. And you look for Djokovic this week. He uh, you know, hasn't dropped the set. He has been broken twice in three matches and you know, got that first set break back immediately against Quinton Halise, was broken against Shapovalov, but again, was already up a break in that instance. You know, he went unbroken against Daniel Medvedev. He won 88% of his, 89%, excuse me, of his first serve points, but he's over 88% for the second time in this event. He's won 53.8% exactly of second serve points in each of his three victories. And, you know, again, just another ho-hum start to the season where he's held 88% of the time through three matches. Obviously, that's a top 10 number. And what's the biggest difference between this version of Novak Djokovic? Uh, excuse me, 88% of the time he's held over the 90% of the time thus far. But what's the biggest difference for Djokovic at this stage of his career? It's how efficient he is behind that first serve. His ability to find the first strike with ease and just the precision. And in my opinion, honest to God, added pace for him on that ball. I think there's more sting on his first forehand now than there was back in 2016-17, obviously 15 and 2011 versions when he could just rely on that physicality so endlessly. I think he's much more efficient with his first strike. He's gotten better as a first volleyer, certainly, as well. And look, the backhand approach has always been the best backhand, in my opinion, in men's tennis professional history. But it's adding in the serve and volley as well. And just tactically taking advantage so ruthlessly of Daniil Medvedev's defensive court positioning. Now, there were times when Medvedev came up with magic. His, you know, that 30-all return he hits dipped at the feet of Novak Djokovic, which he then, from there, turns into this stellar backhand passing shot. Djokovic-esque on that ball was Daniil Medvedev. But, you know, despite, and I've said this before in this matchup, Medvedev, on the right day, tries to out Djokovic Djokovic. And Djokovic just, is better at adjusting, is better at preparing, is better at throwing in the wrinkle of the serve and volley, taking advantage of the space more decisively and confidently moving forward than Medvedev is. And that's why Djokovic is 9-4 and four in the 13 matchups between these two. And look, I mean, again, Medvedev blinked twice. It wasn't a bad day at the office for Daniil Medvedev, who gets broken, what was it, 3-all he got broken, or 4-3 in set number one, then broken at 3-all, I want to say, in set number two. 
Medvedev won 74% of his first serve points. He hit, I think, nine or 10 aces throughout the course of this match. was only broken twice. The thing is, and that's why I started with the improvements for Novak Djokovic, the efficiency of his first strike, how precise he is on hitting his first service spots. He's just gotten really good in this matchup of understanding. I got to create space for myself, serve to the to the wides, you know, out wide on the ad, uh, on the deuce, excuse me, kick serve on the ad. And serve and volley and take advantage of the space and force Daniil Medvedev to come up with these exceptional, miraculous passing shots that are really difficult to replicate over the course of two plus hours against Novak freaking Djokovic. Now, he tweaked the hamstring. It seemed to be okay. He meaning Novak Djokovic by the end of the match. We'll see how it responds against Korda. But, I mean, you look for Djokovic again. It was just an efficient day at the office for the current world number five, which is just a hilarious thing uh, to say out loud. But, I mean, look, we knew he was the favorite going into Australia with the news, obviously, of Carlos Alcaraz forced to withdraw due to the injury he picked up uh, in offseason training. He's the prohibitive favorite. Prohibitive. Prohibitive front runner. And guess what? The odds makers now agree as he's moved from plus 115 to minus 125 with Alcaraz now withdrawing. This win over Medvedev certainly helps as well. And look, it's a slight Medvedev issue, I suppose. You know, people, the, the scouting report is out. We saw it throughout the course of last season, whether it was Nick Kyrgios just slowly but surely serving in volley and getting his way to the net to ensure, uh, obviously, that time was taken away from Daniil Medvedev and he was maintaining his posture as the aggressor. He's not letting that return bounce and letting Medvedev get things back to neutral. We saw, you know, Novak do that today. We saw Novak do it at the Tour Finals. We saw him do it in Astana. We saw Tsitsipas do it at the Tour Finals as well. The playbook is out on how you have to beat Daniil Medvedev. And honestly, what's so funny to me is I've always said, why are Roger, Rafa, and Novak so fun as a trio? Because how do you beat Roger? You're lefty who hits with heavy topspin into his one-handed backhand. That's Rafael freaking Nadal at its most basic level. How do you beat Rafa? Well, you have to be the most insane physical human in the world who can somehow match that physicality for five plus hours because that's what it takes to beat Rafa. And you have, a have, have to have a backhand capable of handling the heavy topspin forehand that Rafa throws at you. You have to be comfortable taking that backhand down the line. And oh yeah, did I mention you have to be a superhuman freak sort of athlete? That's Novak Djokovic to a T. How do you beat Novak Djokovic? Well, to some extent, you just got to say it and go down swinging and take your chances and serve and volley. And, you know, if the if there's a ball you can take early on the rise, take it early on the rise. And just, you know, if you're trying to outlast him, that's never going to work. So you have to be willing to take your chances. That's Roger freaking Federer, arguably the greatest shot maker we've ever seen in men's professional tennis. It's just all the fun matchups. Again, it's a really fun contrast of styles. And I think to Novak Djokovic, uh, you know, again, he brings on the Roger Federer game plan when facing the pseudo version of himself in Daniil Medvedev. And that's the Medvedev issues. Everyone kind of realizes, okay, I got to go down swinging, got to take my chances, got to have some, dare I say, effort moments against Daniil Medvedev because I'm not going to out-physical him. If I let him get back to neutral, he's going to come up with some ridiculous on-the-run backhand. He's going to hit that funky forehand grip down the line, inside out, the way I least expected. All of these different things... And so they're going down swinging. 
And again, you have to be a Kyrgios, a Tsitsipas, a Djokovic to be able to execute that exceptionally well to ultimately knock him off. We saw Karen Hatchinov let the ball bounce too many times after Medvedev's return of serve. Medvedev was able to get things back to neutral. Medvedev ultimately able to work his way back into the match. But yeah. The scouting reports out because, you know, again, Medvedev's going to stay competitive given he is six foot six and can hit the massive serve. But the best of the best, they know what to do in their service games now to sort of neutralize Medvedev's extraordinarily defensive return positioning. So, look, that's fascinating. Just another thing to throw on all of the radars. With that said, uh, again, we've talked a lot about Sebi Korda into his fifth, sixth, excuse me, pro final of his career, if you include the next-gen finals with a straight set 7-5-2-0 win over Yoshihito Nishioka. Now Nishioka ultimately pulls out of the match with an injury following the first set. I mean, when you look for Korda, I just want to quickly say, three out of his last four tournaments, again, he's made the finals. It's the serve, which he has held over 85% of the time since October 1st of last year. And you combine that with the fact that he's a top 15 returner for the duration of the 2022 season. If he becomes a top 10 server, as he's been these last six weeks, and combines that with the top 15 returner he really has been since he's walked on to the tour, that's a top 10 player. The math says it. The eye test says it. He sprayed too many Yoshihito Nishioka returns, and to me, that's the equivalent of going up against a knuckleballer, a knuckleball pitcher in baseball, Tim Wakefield. Shout out. Um, it's just like you don't, you're not used to seeing a knuckleballer. You're not used to seeing that slow, waffling ball approaching you. The same way you're not used to seeing the heavy slice and slow, lefty, again, knuckleball that Nishioka throws at you on serve. That said, when it was crunch time, First set breaker, it was the assertiveness, the, rep, the how easy it was for Korda to create free points for himself behind his first serve that ultimately separated he and Yoshi down the home stretch. That said, oh man, Yoshi got hosed and... You know, he retires due to a right hip injury. I don't want to speak negatively. He could very well be injured, and more than anything, we hope he's healthy because he's a top 40 guy right now. Just such a physical nightmare to face and such a fun contrast against any opponent on the ATP Tour. But 6-5, court is serving, first set breaker, Court is serve, has the mini break lead in hand, set point in hand again. He's serving. Second serve, Nishioka hits a great return, and Nishioka takes control of the baseline rally. He hits a backhand that just clips off the baseline, and the lines person called it out. And immediately, the chair umpire overruled the lines person, and they had to replay the point. Now, ultimately, Korda did miss the first serve again, but Korda goes on to win that point after Yoshi would have been in a definitive position with how well he hit his backhand to win the prior 6-5 attempt. And he loses that next point. Korda takes the first set 7-6. And for three minutes straight, Yoshi just gives it to the chair umpire. And you can understand why. Just to have an overrule in that moment, to be forced to replay the point when Yoshi was so clearly in command of it. And, you know, again, it's on a set point as well, not an insignificant moment. Yoshi says, you lost me the match. You lost me the prize money. You lost me the points. You don't understand what you just did with that overrule. And look, the chair did as much as he could to just understand and be there as the almost chair, dare you say, armchair therapist to just let Yoshi vent off the steam. Now, Yoshi also ultimately gets a conduct violation warning, as he should have, because it was relentless, the anger he threw at the chair. And again, the chair took it. The chair's like, look, I overruled him. I agree. Really tough spot, but we have to move on. 
And you can understand why Yoshi was just so furious because there's a really tough call with the chair uh, against Popper in the day prior. Things just weren't work- working great in that moment for Yoshihito Nishioka. And you do wonder with any sort of pain on top of the frustration, you know, again, does that lead to the retirement? Who knows? Uh, hopefully we see Yoshi healthy come the Australian Open. That said, Djokovic Korda, sign me up. I mean, again, how do Sebi's weapons hold up against the best of the best from a defensive perspective? Is he still going to be able to create easy opportunities as he has all week long with his serve, with his forehand? How does Djokovic hold up physically? It's always tough to play, what, four days in a row as he has. Halise, Shapovalov, Medvedev, now Korda. Now he'll get the day off at the Australian Open. So if he looks rough physically in Adelaide, I would not hold that against him come Melbourne. But... I've already tweeted this week. Maybe the last person I want would want to see unseated, and again, he's up to 31, so he'll probably be seated, but I want no part of Sebi Korda in week one of the major. If it's week two, everyone's going to be good in Australia. I want no part of Korda in week number one, and I'm going to have strong thoughts, certainly, on him la- and, uh, next week when we start to preview the action in Melbourne, because you make three finals in four events, you have my attention. And Sebi Korda has my attention, as does, again, that Adelaide final Djokovic, the 78% favorite, according to our friends at Tennis Abstract. With that said, that's your update on what's happening in Adelaide. Want to talk about three other events. Uh, Probably going to talk about them a little bit more quickly here. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Let's start with United Cup. Tsitsipas was magical. That was a really impressive three-set victory where he had the crowd captivated. He had the crowd engaged. Now, from a tennis perspective, the match looked exactly like we'd expect it to look between these two. A lot of serves, a lot of forehands, one break each, uh, ultimately, in that uh, first and second set, or first and third sets, I excuse me, that separate the two of them. Tsitsipas looked pretty good hitting the backhand down the line. Not great, but better than he looked to end last season. And his backhand down the line was better than Berrettini's. That, simply put, was the difference between the two. Tsitsipas was more successful in opening up the ad side of the court by taking his backhand down the line than getting a forehand to hit into the Matteo Berrettini backhand with. That said, really thin margins between these two. And look, with Alcaraz withdrawing, I believe now Berrettini is go uh, excuse me, now Tsitsipas is going to be a top 10 seed, uh, top five seed. He might even be the number two seed at the Australian Open. No, I think number three behind Rafa and Rude. Berrettini uh, is going to be seated 14th or 13th, I suppose, now that there's no Alcaraz. I mean, I would want no part of Berrettini in the round of 16. We know when healthy, what he did in 2021, quarterfinal after quarterfinal after final after semifinal, losing, what, only to Rafa and Novak at the slams, whatever it was. Like, his serve, his forehand, they're just sure things. It might be the surest commodity of any ground stroke serve combination we have on the ATP Tour right now, but Tsitsipas was a little bit more creative. He did an excellent job, excellent job of embracing the fans. This was a really fun match that ultimately, again, 4-6, 7-6, 6-4, Tsitsipas keeps Team Greece alive, but 
look, as as good of an effort as Gramatikapolu attempt uh, put on against Lucia Bronzetti. Bronzetti just had more at her disposal. That forehand whipped around the court. She had her Greek opponent constantly on the move. And I mean, again, the energy from this Italian bench, from Berrettini and Musetti, Martina Trevisan, who's having the time of her life on that bench celebrating and, you know, the team atmosphere, the team coaches, they just get into it. That's what team tennis that's why it's always been so magical to me. It's why we're such fans of college tennis here uh, at Cracked Rackets because to watch these tennis players have the opportunity to support one another because it's an individual sport. They never have that opportunity to get to see them have it and how every tennis to a uh, player to a tee always embraces it. Look, you could feel how devastated Tsitsipas was, how devastated Sakri was to have lost that match to Trevisan to have put her team to at least not have a shot at that you know, magical mixed doubles tiebreaker, that final rubber just to see if they could do it. Um, it's what makes this, Dave, uh, excuse me, this United Cup event special. That said, look, this title is Team USA's to lose. Team USA has been that good throughout the course of this event. Another 5-0 victory for the Americans. They get a 6-6 six and six win out of Taylor Fritz. Great bounce back for him after the Nori three-set loss where he was up a break in the third. And Look, I mean, Taylor Fritz was shameless and relentless in playing with pace through the Herbie Hurricots forehand. And credit to Hubi, who was put together a clean sheet on serve, who continued to, okay, I know where you're going. That just means I'm going to be prepared for it, and I'm going to be ready to be aggressive, to take balls up the line, to just be the aggressor if you're going to be stagnant. It was a top 20 level match between those two. Again, first strike being the key. Fritz just more action hitting to the uh, that hit the heavier ball to the Hurkats forehand that drew enough errors or enough short balls that then Fritz is able to attack with his back and wing both down the line or if Horkatz is trying to cheat over, he'll keep him honest by blitzing through that backhand cross court. You know, again, it's fun matchups on the men's side. Fritz Berrettini, Tiafo Musetti, but why this is Team USA's to lose is that Pagula might be Trevisan as well. She played against Sakari. Pagula might win two and two. Keys with how well she's playing. She's yet to lose a match. The power tennis, flawless. It's just like last year in Australia when she got off to such a hot start. She seems fit. She seems focused. I mean, you feel like America goes into the matchup 2-0. They need another Martin, Martina Trevisan special. And can she go from playing as well as she did against Iga, as well as she did against Sakari, and do that again against Jessica Pagula, who, by the way, just beat Iga 2-2 two and, two and ain't too, playing too shabby herself? I would venture the answer to that question is no. And so, look, America hasn't won a Davis Cup title since 2007. We haven't won a Billie Jean King Cup slash Fed Cup title since 2017. It's been five years since we've had something to celebrate from a team perspective here in America. Lake Nota's got to have a parade. Like, let's parade this team around the USTA National Campus in Orlando if they do ultimately capture this title because this team has been exceptional. They embrace one another. I mean, again, Tiafo Musetti is popcorn match, and that's number two behind Fritz and Berrettini in the one spot. It's going to be a really good United Cup. The crowd has been electric. They have embraced the team atmosphere. They'll get behind whichever team is down on the team scoreboard. I'm all in. It's going to be a really fun weekend. The good news is we still have two other tour events happening outside of Australia, whether it's in New Zealand, where I want to turn to next. It has been the Coco Golf Show 
in Auckland. And look, Goff has yet to face a top 50 opponent throughout her run to the final, but credit to Coco Goff, who it feels like, again, has been a part of our lives for forever now. And yet you look for Coco Goff in her career, you know, hasn't made a ton of finals, right? It's just her third, uh, fourth, excuse me, tour-level final. Now she won two titles, Linz 2019, Parma 2021, made the Roland Garros final last year, but, you know, didn't capture a title and to get that monkey off the back right away and give yourself a shot at another final uh, with this first run of the year in Auckland, she has just been exceptional. And, you know, she's yet to drop a set, four straight set victories over Maria, Kennan, Julin, and Kavinich. She won 0-2, was up, what, won the first eight games, I think, 6-0, on Kavinich, who just didn't have a weapon to hurt her. I mentioned this, you look for Goff now last 52 weeks against opponents ranked outside the top 50. She's 25-2. and two. She doesn't lose to opponents she shouldn't lose to, and one of those top non-top 50 losses was to Madison Keys, who was outside the top 50 at the start of last year, and she lost that match 7-5 in the third. Even more impressive against opponents ranked outside the top 20 now. She's 36-9. and nine. Like She just doesn't lose to players she's not supposed to lose to, unless you have an elite weapon to attack her forehand with. Her ability, the discipline she has, and it resonates with my own game as someone who grew up with two lefty brothers who was just accustomed to, when I played a righty, hit my forehand down the line, open up the backhand side by playing forehand down the line so that they're baited into attacking my backhand because all I want to be doing is playing backhand cross court. That little loopy, elevated, heavy topspin forehand up the line to just buy herself time to get to the center of the court or bait you into playing to her backhand where now she can go down the line with it or heavy cross court. Now she's just in a commanding position boy, does she hit that little neutral forehand exceptionally well. And that's why she beats all the players who don't have weapons to hurt her because she uses that ball to reset things as well as any player on tour has a reset shot in their arsenal right now. And again, she's swinging through the backhand fluidly. She's moving forward with ease. She's been lights out on her first serve throughout the course of this week in Auckland. Now, again, the the only match she had legitimate competition as it relates to preparing for the second week of Australia was the Kennan match, where it was a really tight fought four and four, where she had to play a little defense and had to win some free points with her serve. But again, if the first week of the season is meant to be a tune-up, that's what Coco Goff has done. And now she's the unequivocal favorite going into the final as she takes on first-time tour-level finalist and qualifier, Rebecca Masarova, who with this result, the 23-year-old now up to a new career high, number tw- uh, 94, excuse me, in the WTA live rankings, of course. Masarova was the 2016 Junior French Open champion. So back in the day, we knew she was capable of this sort of success. That said, it's taken a little bit longer. And the thing when I see the 23-year-old is how fit she she is. Oh my God, just the fluidity moving in particular to her backhand wing. That Yasleen Bonaventure long, loopy wind-up forehand, heavy topspin into the Masarova backhand was the kiss of death. Masarova's ability to drive that ball cross-court, down the line, you know, by the end was trying to avoid playing forehands. It reminded me of NC State's Nell Miller. Shout out to Nell. Shout out to college tennis. Um, it was exceptional from Masarova, who, again, after a huge year at the ITFs last season, the year before that, this is the big one. Tour levels final, first of her career, gets her into the top 100. Again, you know, really nice wins over Irani, over Stevens early in the tournament, 6-6 six and six over Mukova yesterday. And, you know, I also should say she's got the big first serve, and she's tall, and she pops into that first serve when she has time on the forehand. She can drive it really well. But the fluidity on the backhand is the first thing I notice, and just the defensive 
ability on that side, the ability to absorb Bonaventure's pace was impressive. Now, again, it's going to be fun watching the backhand-to-backhand exchanges between her and Goff. They've never played before in their careers. Goff, according to Tennis Abstract, an 85% favorite. Eileen Coco Goff in the matchup, uh, as good as the serve for Masarova is, it's not so big that I think it's going to completely disrupt Goff's forehand wing. I also just, I think Goff's better at everything. She's This is the first player Masarova plays who's definitely a better mover than her, who can match her on the backhand wing, who also has the bigger first serve. It's just like, I think Coco Goff is a little bit better at everything, and I don't think Masarova has a definitive weapon to expose. Obviously, the thing that gets tough is for Coco Goff, which is when people start to attack her forehand wing. So Eileen Goff, and I expect her to end that title drought, and then I'll bring David Gertler on the show just to say, ha-ha, to our dear friend, as he always likes to bring up that fact. He's waiting to see Goff win more titles. Good start to the year for the American after what was a rough Auckland for Americans otherwise down there in New Zealand. Uh, that said, again, last event I want to talk about. If you're going to watch anything from Friday night, Saturday day, whatever you want to talk about, uh, day of play, go watch the the India highlights. Go watch Greekspor and Benjamin Bonzi. Do absolute battle and shout out to Talon Greekspor who earns his first career ATP title shout out to the 2021 challenger season Greekspor won eight challenger titles Benjamin Bonzi won six or seven they were competing for the record all season long and I mean look Benjamin Bonzi I mentioned this earlier in the week he is a top 50 litmus test sort of guy I mentioned the exact stat that proved that out you look for Bonzi over the course of his last 52 weeks he's 34 and 8 against opponents ranked outside the top 50 5 and 19 against top 50 opponents just moves the ball extraordinarily well good athleticism Good pop on the forehand, good pace on the backhand, good volleyer. He's not elite at anything, but he's very, not very good. He's good at everything. That said, the biggest weapon on the court was, without question, the Benjamin Bonzi, uh, excuse me, the Talon Greekspor forehand. And because Bonzi is good, but doesn't have the elite weapons, uh, Greekspor had time on that forehand wing to explode through the ball, to just, again, be be the aggressor, move forward. And boy, did this India crowd want Greeksport to extend the match when it's 6-4 and, you know, the five-all game where Greeksport ultimately gets the break. I think he was down 30-love and just comes up with a couple of magical points for 30-all. The crowd gets behind him. Bonzi has a couple of breakpoint chances that Greeksport fights off with a nice lob, a nice uh, forehand approach. And then Greeksport gets the break. He rode that energy. He rode that momentum all the way through the final. There were a lot of 10, 15-shot rallies in this match. It was really, really good. And shout-out again to Talon Greekspor, who did it the hard way, came through the challenger ranks and had, you know— a tough last year, especially ending, you know, there's a point where he lost seven of eight matches to end the 2022 season. Not a point. He lost seven of eight matches to end 2022. And yet right away here, first title to start 2023, you win what five matches here this week. That's how you bounce back folks. And Greek sport goes from number 95 in the rankings all the way back up is Greek sport, uh, up to number 61. And, 
yeah, now he's got a nice cache of points to at least, I don't want to say rest on, but to offer a little bit of comfort after, again, knowing I've got a lot of catch-up to play come the end of the season. Shout-out to him. Shout-out to Bonzi, up to number 50 right now in the live rankings, which, again, that's your litmus test. How do you get into the top 50? Your gatekeeper, Benjamin Bonzi, uh, who's still looking, again, 5-19 and 19 in the last 52 weeks against top 50 opponents. Going to have to get a little bit better than that if he wants to make the next jump. But with that said, again, still fun tennis to go this weekend. You've got the Adelaide Finals. You've got United Cup. You've got Auckland. Plenty for us to discuss on tomorrow's show. So it'll either be just me, and then we'll do week one overreactions with David Kane on Monday, or we'll switch the two dates, and we'll do week one overreactions tomorrow. Maybe offer some thoughts on the finals there as well with David Kane. The point is, we're rocking and rolling here at Crack Rackets. As we know, it's our job to provide all of you fans day in, day out with all the updates on everything happening in the tennis world. Of course, a shout out as always to the super producer behind the scenes who helps make all of this content possible. Shout out to you, super producer Daniel Westa for the of an editing job you do day in, day out with us here on this show. A shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, as always, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest out, uh, items in the tennis world. With that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.